Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Faultline Social Podcast. This episode, we get to talk to folk punk singer-songwriter Frank Turner. He talks us through his early musical life and shares with us some news about several of his uh, upcoming projects. Thanks again to Frank for doing this, and I uh, hope everyone enjoys. Cheers. Hello. Hey, how are you doing, man? <laughs> All right, thank you. How are you? Excellent. I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for uh, coming on and doing this. A pleasure. You have a more you have a more impressive bookcase next to you than I do. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't you know deliberately meant to upstage you, but the way it's worked. <laughs> but you haven't you have succeeded. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you look over here, you'll see my many leather bound books. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, man, um, what have you uh, what have you been up to today? How's it been going? Uh, mainly doing interviews, actually. Um, uh, uh, we tend to uh, try and group them all together um, uh, so that I can uh, you know organize my time more efficiently uh so mainly that but other than that i'm also i'm working on mixing uh a record for another artist at the moment um which i'm not allowed to say who it is just yet but it's very exciting okay because there was the beans record that just came out yes very recently. Uh, done that yeah done i did i mixed jay's record well mixed and produced jay's record i mixed the pet needs record um I, I it's a thing that it's a world that i'm trying to move into should we say Music production, yeah, yeah, um, cool. Yeah, uh, how was that in the uh, you know pursuant to the kind of um, situation we're at the moment? How how did how did you find that? Um, well, I mean, it, essentially, um, I, for a long time, I, I don't know how technical you are about music, but um, I've been the kind of person who can I can knock out a demo on Logic reasonably easily, um, and that's generally what I've, all I've really a, attempted to do in the world of music production for a long, long time. Um, I needed a project when the first lockdown kicked in. I'm, I'm definitely somebody who thrives from like structure and routine. Um, contrary to popular um, myth, life on tour is very structured. A lot of people think it's this sort of endless, wild, chaotic bacchanalia. It's really not. It, like I get a day sheet that tells me what I'm doing at every minute of every day. Nevertheless, so I needed something to do. And uh, my two options were learn to play the piano properly, finally, um, and uh, learn more about production techniques. And I picked option B. Still can't fucking play the piano. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and then I actually really got into it. And the thing that's cool is that it's hopefully going to be, I don't, without getting too woe is me or into the weeds or whatever but it's like you know it hopefully will be another income stream for me going forward because um obviously the last year's been shit uh when it comes to finances and that kind of thing so so yeah we'll we'll see but i I also more importantly than that i love it i absolutely love it yeah um have you had a hand in much of your own um things in the past when you've been uh recording you know I've I've had all the hand in the world when it comes to arrangement ideas, um, which is part of being a producer. Do you know what I mean? And like, um, uh, so you know, I, I've been, uh, and it's a thing that I care about a lot and think about a lot. And you know, sort of knowing when it's time to throw in a shaker or shift apart onto a capoed guitar position or whatever it might be, all that kind of shit. I've been doing for years. The actual, you know, positioning of microphones and setting the release time on a compressor and that kind of thing, I haven't paid any attention to. There is a part of me that's furious at myself for this because I've made records with some of the best producers in the world and sat next to them whilst they did all this stuff, which would have been a masterclass had I been paying attention, which I wasn't at the time. So I'm now really irritated with myself for not having uh, been paying attention when someone like Rich Costi was working the desk. But, you know, such is life. 
Uh, yeah, there you go. I mean, you know, you can forgive yourself slightly. You've been working hard. You know, you've, you've been like actually <laughs> playing the music and, you know, actually making the sounds. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think I would uh, blame you for turning off while they're playing with all the buttons <laughs> and dials. Um, okay, man. So, yeah, thanks for that. I just want to go back in time ever so briefly. Um, mm. You know, and you, you don't have to go like super in depth to your, um, you know, your your musical influences because they're very well documented all over the internet. Was there kind of like a, maybe a specific moment or a formative moment in time when you kind of realized um, you kind of went from just playing a guitar or however you first started out to wanting to kind of be in a band, you know, with the Million Dead and kind of pursue music full time? Um, I think, well, it's funny. It was it, getting into rock and roll and wanting to actually do it were pretty kind of coterminous for me. Uh, and I think that is at least in part due to it's a it's a matter of character, really. I'm just I'm the kind of person who wants to do a thing that I like. Do you know what I mean? And many times with terrible, terrible success rates. Do you know what I mean? And like, um, I can't draw to save my life. I I can't really program glitchy electronic music to save my life, which is a style that I really love. And I did try and do that once upon a time, and you will never ever hear the results because they were god awful. Um, so you know, but it's like if I if I get enthused about something, I want to do it. That's just how I am, generally speaking. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I, I stumbled into rock and roll. It never really had been a feature of my life when I was a young kid. Um, uh, and it was, it was self-discovered as well. I found it, do you know what I mean? And, like, you know, my parents were, I mean, actively discouraging of my interest in rock and roll music, and, and that meant that it was mine and that there was a sense of kind of defiance about the whole thing anyway. So, you know, I discovered heavy metal initially um loved it and was immediately like right i want to be a band and i got an argos guitar starter pack for christmas and all this um i mean one of the things that's been interesting for me at any rate since then is that you know what exactly i meant by i want to be in a band has evolved over time in many different ways and obviously as a kid it was just like i had I had a VHS of Iron Maiden playing live in uh, Dortmund, funnily enough, and it was like, oh, we'll do that, um, with no understanding of what that would constitute and how you would get there and or anything at all, you know. And then you sort of you start playing, you start learning your instrument, you start learning how to write songs, you start learning how to kind of present what you do and promote what you do. I definitely went through a long period of time being heavily invested in kind of like the militantly DIY underground punk scene. Um, and that kind of early against me thing of like, you know, refusing to play anywhere that wasn't a DIY venue or even like being lightning bolt and refusing to even play on a stage. Um, I remember having like an endless conversation with my mate, Chris, we were in a band together when we were about 16 about the idea that stages represented hierarchy. So we had to find a way and like bills, a gig represented hierarchy. So how would you destroy, smash hierarchy within a gig context? And we had some mad idea about setting bands up in a circle and everybody plays a song one after the other and all this shit, which would have been an awful idea. But um, went through all that kind of thing and then, you know, figured out a slightly more realistic adult way of doing what I do. Um, and now we're here and that's a very short version of my life. Yeah, wicked. Thanks, man. Um, so, <laughs> no, that's, that's great. You know, like, thanks, man. Uh, in terms of, you know, obviously the kind of songwriting that you've done has evolved over time. Um, you know, I just was kind of interested to know what kind of your process is with that and how do you think it's evolved over time, the way that you write? Um, I mean, I guess the first thing I say is I hope that it has evolved over time. I, I have no intention of staying still. And um, songwriting is a funny thing because it's divided between technique and inspiration, which are two separate things, um, art and craft, to be blunt. Um, simplistic, shall we say. Um, 
Uh, I think that, I mean, the first thing to say is that one of the, one of the biggest things that changed between me being in punk bands and the last of which was Million Dead and being a solo artist is I started thinking about songwriting uh, in a way that was kind of new to me. Um, you know, a million dead. I mean, we wrote songs in million dead, but it was kind of a thing where we were just sort of bolting riffs together until we had something that would go. And I'm super proud of a lot of the music we made in that band. I'm not trying to do it down anyway, but it was like, it was much more a, a sort of like theoretical thought about what constitutes a song started coming into play when I became a solo artist. And then, you know, within that you, you, you could, there are many different approaches to it. And, and, um, I do try and uh, not repeat myself. I try and think of different approaches, um, all with the understanding that what I do isn't reinventing the wheel and I'm not exactly like, you know, breaking down particular barriers, but it's like I've done records that leaned heavily, more heavily on punk rock or on indie rock or on folk music or on electronic pop or on whatever it might be. And just sort of trying to push myself in different directions at any given moment. And, and generally speaking, trying to do something different from what I did last time around. That's often been quite important for me. The one thing I would say as well, um, which I find interesting, which goes to what we were talking about with production or the rest of it. We've reached a point now, technologically speaking, whereby the process of writing a song or the process of demoing a song are starting to kind of meld into each other, or, or at least they can do, um, in a way that I find quite interesting because it means that the art and the craft side of songwriting are starting to kind of fold into each other. So in the old days, before it was possible to jot down ideas as quickly as it is now, I would write an entire song vocals and guitar and I would have ideas about what drums and might do and lead guitar part might do and piano part might do but you'd, you'd have to sort of do the whole first part of the process first before you got anywhere near any of that kind of shit whereas now I have moments when I'm writing and demoing these days where I will have a verse idea that I think is quite good and in 10 minutes I can knock up a version of that verse that will have a lead guitar part on or whatever and it might be that the lead guitar part will suggest what comes next and therefore, that kind of process, yeah, it, it's still starting to kind of, the barriers are starting to break down. I find that very interesting, personally. Um, it may well be that at some point further down the line, I might, as an exercise, ban myself from doing that and go back to the old way of doing things, because I do, again, I think there's value in different kind of uh, technical approaches to it. Do you know what I mean? Um, one of the things that I've done in recent years um, uh I've done two records with John Snodgrass, Buddies and Buddies 2. And with both those records, the rule is we write the whole album in a day. And I don't then go on and write my own albums in a day, but it, the first time we did it, I was so surprised that we were even able to do that. It really kind of reminded me that sometimes quickly made decisions can be better than decisions you spend your entire life agonizing over. Do you know what I mean? And like, I have a tendency to overthink and to redraft and to rewrite for fucking ever uh, and it was a it was a salutary reminder in the value of kind of um just being responsive being 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 impulsive should we say um and so so yeah so i, I definitely sort of try different sort of approaches to things from time to time um be more kind was a record that was in large part written a lot of that record came out of me playing with loops which was a new thing for me i'd never really messed around with loops before and it was a case of just throwing up a loop and fucking around with it and seeing what came which was a new way of writing for me as well so you know i'm trying to push myself should we say yeah, of course. Well, with the Buddies record, so obviously that's like very collaborative and you can kind of yeah. bounce off each other and, and it's that kind of vibe with the writing. Um, 
Do you get much chance to do that in your solo stuff as well? Do you have like a producer or like uh, you, um, you have a band that you work with, right? Yeah, no, no is the short answer. And like it's been an, it's been something that's quite characterized my solo career is that one of the main differences that I noticed right at the beginning is that when you're in a band, you have an inbuilt walls off which to bounce ideas. You know, you come up with something and somebody else will tell you that's amazing or that's fucking garbage. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it can be quite difficult to tell sometimes because your nose is right up against it. Right. Um, I definitely have I have a small cast of very close friends who get first listens. Do you know what I mean? Um, and they are chosen because of their willingness to insult me. <laughs> if you know what I mean, not insult me, but to be, yeah, to be to be brutal. You know, so I have there's there's four people on that list currently, and and they will um, they will let me know. And, and, and not just, I mean, it's very rare that they'll be like, that's fucking dog shit, because <laughs> I do have some inbuilt kind of radar for that, I hope. Um, and, oh, you uh, think so by this point, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you'd hope so, yeah. <laughs> but like, they will, you know, they might point out that it's, let's say, similar to another thing that I've done in the past in a way that I hadn't noticed, or indeed similar to another song by somebody else, which has happened recently when my... <laughs> I, I'm not going to be specific about which song it is, not least it's a song that isn't out yet. My wife pointed out that I'd written a riff in a song that was a straight riff of a Marilyn Manson riff, and I was absolutely staggered, <laughs> partly because I don't really listen to Marilyn Manson. I listened to Antichrist Superstar when it came out. It's a great record. I haven't really listened to anything since then, and this was a song that wasn't from that album, but also because my wife is a folk singer, and she knew a Marilyn Manson song, and I was just <laughs> like, what, what the fuck is going on? But so, you know, there are there that is helpful to me. Um but generally speaking, I'm quite kind of, um, I'm quite, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like assertive. I tend to know what I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I'm currently working um, with Rich Costi on a record, who is the guy I made Take That Cart with, um, who is a big name producer dude and all the rest of it. And he has said to me in the past that he was, he was like, you know what you're doing, like <laughs> in, in, more than some artists. It's like, it's very clear what in your head what the song is before you come anywhere fucking near me, should we say. So, I, which I took as a compliment. Yeah, of course, man. So, and just briefly on songwriting again. Um, so if we talk about like conceptually, you know, folk music is like at its core, I suppose, about storytelling and, mm. you know, things of this nature. Um, is that the first thing you have in mind when you're kind of penning a song? Does it, I mean, obviously, you know, it all comes from real life, but um, how interested are you in storytelling as, as a concept? Um. I, I think it's I think it's a string to a bow, and like certainly my own taste for songs often runs in that direction, although not exclusively. So, um, I would say more that um, I've I've attempted to to like verbalise what I'm about to attempt to verbalise in the past and failed. So let's give it another shot. But like there is a bit, there is a little bit of songwriting for me, which is almost just a bit. It's a bit like imagining what a finished song would be like. And go, imagine if there was a song that was like that or that was about that and that felt like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, like, so to pick an example, I, the, the first song on No Man's Land is a song about um, a woman called Ginny Bingham, who was a witch from Camden. And I sort of found a story and it was like, imagine there was a song about Ginny Bingham that was kind of like a folk punk song. Do you know what I mean? And then it's like, you sort of got your finish line, however vague it might be, however instinctual and, and ill-formed it might be, there's a kind of target that you're working towards. Um, and I find it quite useful, as much as this is possible, to try and to, as, a, as a way of kind of checking myself during the writing process. 
you know what I mean? It's like, am I actually heading that direction? And sometimes there's no, and that's good. And sometimes that's that's cool. And you you very often end up in a different place from where you thought you'd end up, and that's cool. I mean, the most extreme example of that for me is is um, is ideas that kind of go in one end of the of the machine and come out the other end with <laughs> untouched. I had this riff that I wrote. It's it's in my notes as Aberdeen rock riff, right? Because I wrote it during a sound check in Aberdeen, and it's a really cool little rock lick. Kind of, kind of classic rock, kind of hold steady, kind of guitar lick. And I wrote it, and then I put a song together around it, and then it kept evolving and evolving and evolving and evolving. It turned into the song Silent Key. By the time it was finished, the riff was no longer in the song. Um, it, had been, it, it had been jettisoned along the way, which is kind of cool because it means I could use it for something else. And But it's just like, for some reason, it was a sparking off point, but it didn't stay the course. Um, and that has happened for me in the past. Um, you know, another thing I quite often do is strip songs for parts. If I finish, if I finish a song, there's got to be something worthwhile going on. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't, I don't, I wouldn't bother to finish it if there was nothing of value. But I will finish a song and go, mm, nah, from time to time. And what I tend to do with those songs is go back to them later and strip them for parts. And it's kind of interesting to me that I could listen back to demos from five years ago that's got the verse of this finished song, the chorus of this finished song, and the middle eight of that finished song in it, or a set of lyrics that ended up with a different set of music or whatever. Um, you know, I don't want to jet, I don't want to ditch it entirely and throw it all away, but they sometimes things end up in different places from where I would have imagined in the first place. Cool. Okay. Thanks, man. Um, and just briefly, you know, we'll talk about lockdown one more time. Um, <laughs> trying to stay off it as much as I can, but uh, it, you know, when if you're, you know, very confident and, you know, you kind of know what sound you're looking for, you kind of are quite happy to write and conceptualize by yourself. Um, has that changed uh, the way that you're working on things creatively now? <clears throat> yeah, uh, yes. I mean, in many ways. Um like a lot of people when lockdown kicked in, I was thinking to myself, well, here's a civil lining. There's lots of time to focus and be creative because there's no distractions. And then, of course, there was a distraction, which was the fucking global pandemic. <laughs> so, um, and of course, like a lot of people, I went slipped into the habit of writing lockdown songs, songs about lockdown. And I have a bit of a theory that there might be a glut of those coming down the pipeline. And I'm not sure how interested people are going to be in songs about how <laughs> shit everything was in April last year. Um, I think we're all allowed one. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I think that's fair. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so uh, so that, there's that. And I mean, it, I've had a very weird experience last year. I'd have very sort of fecund periods where I'd write a lot, and then I'd have moments of complete paralysis where I'd write nothing at all. Um, specifically, what I've been working on, at the start of last year, I was sort of 10 songs into writing my next record and was thinking to myself, ah, I'll write four more, and then we'll have two spares. And that'll be good. And as it goes, I'm now up to about 28 songs written for that record. And I'm quite pleased wow. about that because it means that I've been able to kind of be a lot more picky about material with it. And whether those other songs will become B-sides or will be stripped for parts or whatever, time will tell. But it, I definitely feel much, much more excited and confident about the next album that I'm going to put out. Recording it is a logistical challenge um, for obvious reasons. Uh, but um, I'm excited about where that's going to go. And that, and that the record would not be what it currently is if last year had gone normally. So that's exciting. Um, I think one of the other things as well is just that um, whilst I tend to write independently and then take material to my band to arrange and by that point, I've usually got about 50% of the arrangement ideas I outlined in my head, and then we finish it 
as a unit. We've not been able to do that this year because we haven't been able to see each other in the, in the last year. So I've been, and, and then concomitant with everything I was saying about learning about more production stuff, my standard of demoing has got much, much, much higher in the last year. Um, and that's been kind of interesting. Um, it's, it's different to the way the, the last four records I've made, shall we say, because it feels a, a much, I feel much more like an auteur, shall we say. Do you know what I mean? I've kind of taken all the arrangement ideas back in-house. And that's not because I have any issue with the things that the guys in my band's come up with. It's because I have to. So in a broad sense, um, <laughs> what do you think uh, that you've done well in your career or that's gone well for you in your career? And, <laughs> and <laughs> sorry, very broad, I know. Um, yeah, 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 so, so what have you done well? Um, and, you know, retrospectively, and how do you think that's kind of set you apart from uh, contemporaries? Uh, well, I mean, let's start with the caveat that I think I'm the wrong person to answer this question, actually. But I'll give it a okay. go, nonetheless. I mean, <laughs> um, I can't really have any objective standpoint on the songs that I write because they're way too close to them. And of course, they feel different and unique and individual to me because I fucking wrote them. Um, and it may be that I'm utterly generic or I sound exactly like somebody else, but I would not really be able to tell that. Um, nevertheless, I feel quite good about the fact, I feel like I've stood my ground creatively uh, and I feel like I've pushed myself creatively. I think that there's a reasonably substantive width to my songwriting should we say stylistically um which i'm proud of i think the most the probably the thing i'm kind of proudest of is like mm, i when we when we've done the lost evenings festival obviously we're supposed to again last year it got cancelled it's my own little festival thing it's like four days in one venue i headline each night with different sets different bands blah, blah, blah. um there's a sense of community around those shows which is really quite something um and it's difficult for me to uh, say this with any confidence, but like it feels unusual, should we say? Um, like a lot of people make that comment. I mean, they're obviously fans anyway, so it's not objective per se. But like my wife, for example, who I met in 2015, so when what I was doing was really quite well established, has, has long said that there is a kind of unique angle on what I do in terms of a sense of community around it. Not for every single person who ever listens to one of my songs, but for the people who are really, really into it. Um, and that it's welcoming and it's gentle and it's considerate and this kind of thing. And that that's that's cool because that's the thing that I wanted. Um, a few years ago, uh, actually at the second Lost Evenings, which was in Camden at the Roundhouse, um, my, one of my very best friends, who is also one of the people I send songs to, incidentally, who I've known for a very long time, um, started laughing at one point. He said, oh, I've figured it out, you fucker. And I said, what? And he said, all you're doing here, because this is a guy I've known from back when I was involved in the UKHC um, punk rock hardcore scene in the UK, which was a formative time for me that sort of had some politics and it was all got a bit weird and blah, 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 and the rest of it, like anything that you do when you're a teenager. Um, he was like, all you're really doing here is trying to rebuild what you thought punk rock was supposed to be before you ever went to shows and found out what it's really like. <laughs> and I said, yeah, fair enough. Fair cop. I'll take it. Do you know what I mean? It's like the, the completely utopian idealized idea of what punk rock is supposed to be is what I'm trying to build at last evenings. And, and, and it feels, I feel like I have a version of it that not that many other people have. Um, Sorry, I'm, I'm going on here, but like in terms of like, oh, it's all about, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, like, yeah, I feel like I, I, I've long had a slightly weird career in the sense that like, 
I've never been cool. And I certainly am off the radar of quite a lot of... There, there was an incident in my career when my booking agent booked me Wembley Arena. Her boss assumed that it was an error uh, because he assumed that I was still playing the bar fly because he hadn't been paying any attention to my career. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a lot of people who... I mean, the enemy didn't really write about me until I'd sold out an arena show. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I feel quite good about the fact that I, that I built the career that I have such as it is on my own terms with kind of graft. Um, that's not to say I didn't have a shit ton of assistance from other people. I'm not going to say that, but it's, it, you know, it, I, I feel like I can stand uh, independently um, in a way that I'm quite proud of. Absolutely, man. And I think playing live is like a, obviously like a huge, huge thing for you. Like when you talk about that sense of community, it's like people yeah. go and see, I mean, people buy the records, obviously, but people like go to see you like play live and like perform live. Um, yeah. I think that's like a big pull. Uh, so I kind of wondered what has, um, you know, playing live all these years, you know, all this road and gigging experience, has that uh, imparted any valuable lessons to you? Not necessarily about even <laughs> the music industry, just, just anything. Uh, I mean, it's certainly, it's, it's done wonders for my self-confidence. <laughs> I mean, in, in seriousness, like, I mean, stay, it's, a, it's an odd thing to say, and it might come across as pretentious now to think about it, which is not meant to, but like being on a stage and standing in a crowd is pretty much the only place in life where I feel a hundred percent comfortable with my own skin. Um, and I, I try quite hard not to have a divide between who I am on a stage and who I am as an individual because that feels artificial to me nevertheless like I'm not quite as kind of like yeah kind of brash and forthright in real life as I can be when I'm on a stage because obviously that's part of the show you've got to you've got to take possession of a of a, of a space in order to do a good show in my opinion um and so it's definitely you know I think that people who knew me when I was a teenager who well specifically who then haven't seen me since might come and see a show and just be like Jesus fucking Christ what happened to him <laughs> not in a bad way but it's just like from the retiring asshole in the corner of the party in a trench coat trying to obviously read Camus or some shit <laughs> to uh, to um to uh I'm sure you've got Camus on your bookcase now. um uh, to uh, <laughs> somewhere, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, from that to kind of like being able to kind of orchestrate like a wall of hugs at an arena show is 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 a change, and uh, and that's good. Um, or at least it well, it's good. That's that's different. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I mean, it's taught me lots of things about how to do shows, but that's a self-referential thing to say. Do you know what I mean? But like, I I, I would hope that I have some knowledge of the. Um, both the art and craft of performance by this point. I mean, it'd be <laughs> disappointing if I didn't, shall we say. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, back you up on that one, man. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, For whatever it's worth. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the one thing in life where I've, I can confidently say that I'm quite good at it. I, I, I genuinely will reserve judgment about pretty much everything else, but that is one thing where I, I quite ha happily stand up in front of a room full of stage and say I'm, I'm reasonably good at this. Yeah, back yourself. Absolutely, man. Yeah, great. Um, so going back a number of years, this is quite a, a specific reference, but uh, Billy Connolly, the comedian, he did a, his world mm. tour of, of Scotland, um, yes. where he literally just went around the whole country and he just like played the smallest kind of venues. And, you know, he played the big venues too, but he played the yeah, yeah. kind of very small things to let everyone in Scotland kind of see him. Um, so you kind of strike me as the kind of person who would do something similar to that. You would kind of go around and play in all these kind of really local, like, you know, small community shows around England yeah. or the south of England. Um, do you yeah. reckon 
would you be interested in doing something like that? Yeah, there's there's a few ideas along that line which have kind of crossed my mind. I mean, it's difficult because um, my reticence about it is simply because, like, well, for, in the early days, I used to chore like that out of necessity. Do you know what I mean? Because it's not that many people in any given place want to be to play <laughs> or whatever. But um, uh, I, uh, you know, the idea of kind of going back to that's kind of interesting. There's a time constraint. I could do that much touring in just in the UK at that period of time because nobody, I didn't tour anywhere else, you know. And it's like if I was to do the kind of UK touring I did and replicate that in other parts of the world, let's say on a given album, I'd have to tour each album I did for about six years. Um, and there is a degree to which and then also the whole thing about like if I do play smaller shows, they smaller than I'm able to play, they will sell out very quickly. And my worry is at that point it becomes exclusionary. I have this very vivid memory of being a kid where Rage Against Machine played the Astoria and I wanted to go. And I didn't even know about it until it was being sold out for a month because I wasn't cool. I wasn't the kind of person who'd know about that kind of shit. And I felt very excluded by it. And I don't want to I don't want you to have to be in the know to come and see me play. Do you know what I mean? So a lot of the time the the choice of where I play is governed by things like that. Having said all that, um, I I have a friend, uh, a friend of a friend of mine is a quite a big comedy booking agent. We ended up um, chatting at a party once upon a time, and I, I've long been fascinated. If you look at the tour schedules of comedians in the UK, they're fucking bananas. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's like, oh my God, he's playing St. Albans and Hartford. And do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, where are they even playing in these places? Yeah. And um, we had a really, really, me and this booking agent, we had a really, really interesting conversation. And one of the things she was saying is that that kind of touring tends to book about three years ahead uh, because it's so specific where you have to be uh, in order to make a run work like that geographically, yeah. that, that the competition, let's say, uh, for venue spaces is, is much higher. Nevertheless, that would be interesting to me. I like that idea. I did also, I had an idea, I have an idea for the next record I put out, which is in part governed by the fact that anywhere in the world, you announce a tour and you immediately get met with a list of places that aren't on the tour by the eternally disgruntled right. on the internet. Right. And, and quite usually one or two places that are on the tour that they just didn't notice as well in the comments. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the UK is particularly bad for this, I might add. I remember touring over uh, touring the UK in 2007 with my friend Jonah Matranga, who's from San Francisco, and he was getting some heat for the fact that we were playing Manchester and not Liverpool. And he kept looking at a map and going, how far apart are they? And I was like, not that far. And he was like, well, people could just come. And he was yeah. like, yeah, not in this country. People in the UK <laughs> travel less for shows than they do. Certainly they do in America. And there's many, many different historical and cultural yeah, reasons. Yeah, it's that. like bizarre, isn't it? Like people won't drive 40 minutes to go somewhere, but like in America, they'll be like, I've driven across the coast to see this band play that I, I, I wanted uh, to see. Yeah, yeah. on my one of my first American tours, a couple came to a show. They'd driven eight hours to see me open for Social <laughs> D and, and missed the show. Um, oh. So... So I went and played them a gig at their car in the car park because I felt oh, so... Oh, that's like, lovely. <laughs> well, no, no one else at the gig knew who I was. So <laughs> they come all that way and missed it. And I was like, oh, for fuck. Because I was selling my own merch. So they came up to the merch table and went, really looking forward to your set. And I was like, yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> it was a cool night. Um, uh, anyway, um, so in order to combat that whole, like, why don't you play, kind of thing... I've sort of been toying with this kind of idea. We've been looking at trying to play like every US state in a row. And then possibly the the problem that we then get into, and this gets quite specific, is that is like what administrative breakdowns of, of the different areas of the UK there are. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, I think there's like 36 English counties 
okay, I could do a 36-day English tour. But then there's like something like 40 Scottish counties, and I just, I personally cannot play 40 shows in Scotland. It's just, <laughs> that's just not a thing. I mean, I'd like to try, but fuck it. And and so you've got to, do you know what I mean? You've got, and like, there's like a bazillion counties of Ireland um, and all this sort of thing. So we've been trying to figure it out, but I think it would be kind of cool to do a tour. We did every US state, every English county, every whatever version of Scottish breakdown we come up with, or whatever. And partly because it's kind of cool. Um, and partly because it's a way of saying, yes, I fucking am playing near you. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's like, it, it cannot be possible that I'm not playing near you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, good luck to you if you did that. That would be an absolute marathon. Um, well, we were we were kind of discussing the logistics of it in February 2020. Um, and oh, and, and that, uh, not, I mean, as in how we would begin booking such a thing. Obviously, <laughs> that's been on hold for the last year, but, um, you know, we'll get there. Cool, man. Yeah. Uh, nice. Um, so, uh, aside from kind of, you know, you've been producing other people's records, you've been writing yeah. your own records. Um, what have you been listening to in kind of uh, your downtime in your, in your own time? Is there anything you've been going back to recently? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, uh, I go through phases, um, like anybody, um, I, uh, in the last year I had quite a heavy, Motown phase and Northern Soul phase. Um, I, I, I was trying to sort of become a bit less greatest hits about my knowledge of Motown. Let's say that. Um, not, not there's anything wrong with Motown's greatest hits because you've got several days worth of the best music ever fucking written right there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and like Northern Soul, I've kind of like, um, I've, I've long had a, a, an interest in, but not much, much knowledge of Northern Soul. And obviously, Northern Soul is that weird thing. It's a musical genre that didn't really produce any music. They just played kind of like B-stock records from Stax and Motown at the wrong speed quite often. Uh, but, you know, getting more Dobie Gray and stuff like that. Right now, I'm having a bit of an extreme music phase. I have a long taste in extreme music um, in many different versions of what the word extreme might mean within music. But right now I've been listening to a lot of Swans and Oxbow um, and that sort of thing. So the kind of like seriously jarringly awful end of post-rock, um, which uh, I had to do on headphones because my wife is not a fan. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and like a, I, in recent years, I went through a huge death and black metal phase. I'm a big, big fan of a lot of that kind of stuff. Um uh, so yeah, I know there's a new documentary about Swans just come out, which is utterly, utterly stunning and worth a watch. Uh, what's that called? Uh, it's called How Far Does a Body Go? Um, and that, I mean, Michael Jare, I think his name is, uh, I can't remember his name now. Good Lord. Michael from Swans, the main dude <laughs> is, is a, is a truly original human. Like, um, that I found very interesting. Also what I found very interesting about it is, is, and it's context dependent, but like how utterly brutal New York was as a city in the late seventies and the early eighties. And it wasn't just a bit like living in Hackney now or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Or, or like Southeast London, it was like a fucking war zone and to be in a war zone and be making this completely insane grinding noise version of sort of punk and jazz was quite a fucking thing to be doing with your life. You know, um, so yeah, and that's then sparked me off going down this whole road of listening to a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, cool, man. Um, so aside from getting out and playing your own shows when everything kind of returns to some sort of normalcy, um, is there any particular artist or, or band that you'd like to um, 
like to go out and see. I, do you manage to catch a lot of shows? Uh, I mean, pandemic. I, Sorry. I do. Yeah, I do my best in between tours. Um, I mean, yeah. it has to be said that <laughs> pre the current yeah. situation, right, particularly sure. widely, um, there would be nights when I would have a gap, a, a week off between tours, and it's like, do you want to go to a gig? And it's a bit like busman's holiday. Do you know what I mean? Um, right. part of me that's yeah. like, <laughs> really. Um, I mean, sometimes I, I do. I have a good, enormous passion for live music, and 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 I love a good show. Um, and I will always go and see the Hold Steady whenever humanly possible. I once actually flew to New York to see the Hold Steady, and then oh, flew wow. back. I, I it was. <laughs> I was out of my house for twenty eight hours. I timed it. I left. <laughs> I flew to New York. I went to the gig. I stayed up and caught the red eye back again. And it was the coolest <laughs> idea. And I played the show as well because when Craig from Hold Steady heard, heard I was doing this, they chucked me on the bill. Um, <laughs> we're friends. And and uh, yeah. the first sort of half to two thirds of it was the coolest thing ever. And the last third was the worst fucking experience of my whole life. Um, and it was just, I am too old to do this. I was sitting on the plane back, just feeling like I was literally going to die. Um, uh, yeah, but, you know, I mean... I'm like anyone right now. It's like I fucking go and see anyone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I so would with go that and in mind, sorry, steps go right now. I was going to say I go and see S <laughs> Club Seven right now. I give a shit. They're still playing. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've, I've no no idea. <laughs> that 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 was a current pop reference in my world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, you know, pandemic aside, you know, we know everything's kind of on hold. Uh, do you have any upcoming uh, projects, you know, musical or not, um, you know, that you'd like to share with us? <clears throat> yes, I do. So, I mean, as I've sort of been mentioning, I've been working on a new record. Um, we've actually recorded about two thirds of it, which we managed to do towards the end of last year when that was kind of allowed within restrictions. That's obviously granted. We, we, we finished before Christmas and went, we'll just pick up in the new year. Um, uh that's been really interesting, incidentally, because I've been recording in a studio with my band in Oxford whilst the producer's been in Vermont, and we've been streaming audio to him as we go. And it, all of us were like, I don't fucking know if this is going to work. And it actually turned out to be really quite an interestingly creative way of making a record. So, uh, mm. And I'm very excited about it. It's, as we mentioned, it's, it's, uh, I think it's going to be a much better record than it was otherwise going to be. It's going to be a very aggressive record uh um in some ways uh, it's definitely leaning on the more punk end of my songwriting than folk or whatever um i couldn't tell you when that's going to come out soon one would hope um sure. and then uh i have i'm going to be slightly oblique about this but i have another side project that i've been working on for eight years um with a guy who is my oldest friend we went to primary school together we noticed us since we were three we were in our first band together when we were 10 um, we haven't made music together for a long time. We came up with an idea for a project about eight years ago, and it has taken us eight pissing years to finish it. Um, and it is radically different to anything I've ever done before. Um, it is very extreme, um, and it's coming out quite soon. Nice. Is that extreme, uh, you know, in, in its content, perhaps, you know, uh, politically? Uh, or No, 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 not politically. It's, it's, <laughs> It's definitely not a political project in any way. It's it's <laughs> okay. uh, it is um, uh, absurdist, Dada esque might be words that one could use around it. Um, but also musically, it is brutally heavy, um, but not in a sort of guitars kind of way necessarily. Uh, mm. I'm being I'll, I'll stop talking about it now because I was just okay, talking about yeah, it. Um, for sure. yeah. But it, it is coming, and I think that when the first track of it drops. 
people will be surprised. Not all of them will be pleasantly surprised, but I think everyone will be surprised. All right, for sure, man. Well, I, I got through everything I had, so... Um, yeah, awesome, look can, at us, speeding on us. Yeah, we can get out early. Yeah, perfect, man. Uh, what, what do you have planned for the rest of the day? I guess we'll... Uh, I, have, I have one more interview today. One today. more, okay, man. Yeah. Uh, but I also, I am uh, mixing a record for another artist, as I mentioned, um, uh, and I have nearly finished this mix, so I might just go and tweak that for a little bit. Yeah, for sure, man. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for doing this. I hope, you know, you're not too burnt out on interviews. Um, but yeah, thanks for your time, man. There's a whole set of questions I don't need to get asked, and I appreciate that, so thank you. Oh, excellent. Okay, well, good, man. Um, yeah, I'll let you go. Take care, and thank you for your time, sir. Yeah, Looking forward all the best, to man. Have a, have, thank you. Have a lovely evening. Cheers, you too, man. Thank you. Bye-bye.